If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. He is someone who was doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. Mm -hmm. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who, almost one year ago, rode a wave of WikiLeaks, emails, bots, trolls, and fake news to victory in 2016, and who's been deflecting questions about Russia's influence in that win ever since. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting today's show as we watch the first tangible images of Robert Mueller's Russia probe fill our TV screens. The surrender to the FBI by former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort on a 12-count indictment. We now enter a new phase, the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end. On another front, the drums aimed toward the White House are beating a new rhythm as the voices of John McCain, Bob Corker, and Jeff Flake, free now to speak their minds with their political futures out of the equation, also indict the temperament and the fitness of the man living inside its walls. Meanwhile, the president continues to tweet. His press secretary continues to spin. And those facing a re-election months from now reckon with how to straddle the fence on an increasingly uncomfortable perch. Which message wins out? The voices of fading mainstream Republicans or the voices of the Trump base, which upended Hillary Clinton's White House run a year ago. Some of that future plotting may be coming, as it did last year, from an army of Russian hackers with laptops given direction from the very top of the government in Moscow. Where did it all start from? Some say the fall of the Berlin Wall and an unhappy KGB agent who watched his glorious Soviet Union crumble before his eyes. With us today, Jim Gilmore, the Emmy-winning producer and reporter from PBS's Frontline, which is airing part two of Putin's Revenge Wednesday night on PBS. I watched part one last week and got a sneak peek of part two over the weekend. It's a captivating two hours that traces the Russian meddling in our affairs to the indignities felt by Vladimir Putin. Handed presidential power in 1999, his reign has spanned Clinton, Bush, Obama, and now Trump. His revenge has been long and slow, but his most recent weapons, bots, trolls, and spearfishing, have been swift, bringing him success beyond his wildest expectations. Putin's revenge, and whether Robert Mueller's Russia probe may do anything to neutralize it after the break. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm a visual guy, so when Frontline traces Vladimir Putin's history back to Ronald Reagan telling Mr. Gorbachev to tear down this wall, I start the popcorn popper popping. Putin's Revenge, which airs part two on Wednesday night, is the perfect prologue to what you're seeing in the latest twists and turns of the Mueller probe. Enjoy it to its fullest, thanks to the work of its director, Michael Kirk, and its producer and reporter, Jim Gilmore, who joins us on the line today from Boston. Jim has been the producer on close to 50 frontline programs, including Bush's War, Obama's Deal, The Meltdown, Breaking the Bank, and Frontline's every four-year preview of the election, The Choice. Jim, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you very much, Josh. Good to be here. Of those 50-some-odd programs, Jim, where does this piece of work stack up in your oeuvre? Um, I think it's a very, very important important one. I think it gives... I think what, what we do best over the years, we've tried our hardest to do it, is give, to give perspective to a story, to give a perspective to the headlines that are hitting at us daily, uh, especially on, on this story. This is one of the most important stories and so it's important to better understand how we got here. And I think that's that's the business that we're in. You do have the definitive lineup in these two hours, both Americans and Russians. Tell us about some of the people that you got to speak on camera from both sides of the Atlantic and some of the people that you wanted to have in the show that were reluctant even at this point to talk. Um, I mean, we started out you know, sort of going for the the diplomats. I mean, we've got uh, basically every ambassador to Russia from the Clinton years all the way through. Um, and we have very interesting insight from um, Russian journalists, Russian members of the Duma, both opposition and supporters of, of Vladimir Putin, and some of the people that have worked and advised for Putin for many years, including the guy who was his PR guy, basically, when he was creating um, his persona. His name again, um, uh, Jim, because he was, he was an incredible interview in the movie. You mean Gleb Pavlov? Yes, Gleb, Gleb, right. Um, David Hoffman, who came on board to, to help us out, who, who, was, um, who was in uh, Moscow for, for many years as uh, the, the chief Washington Post uh, bureau guy, the guy around the bureau, um, is the one who helped us uh, a lot with the, with the Russian interviews. It was amazingly the sign that we had a, a fixer in, in Moscow that was constantly making the phone calls and speaks, speaks um, Russian very well. It was it's sort of amazing that it was as open as it was, because we, we were very wary. Um, when we, we went to the Kremlin first to try to get access to Putin, of course, we asked for access and to some of the, some of the major powers that be in, at, the, at the Kremlin, and they rejected us, but they, but they allowed us to come in which is something. And they didn't, uh, we didn't see any pressure on any individuals, though some of the people that we had that sat down with us in Moscow talked about the fact that they were constantly being followed. I mean, if you're an opposition leader, if you're, you're a journalist that causes them problems, you know, they're, they're always being watched. And I, and I assume that we were being watched as well. But, it, but in the end, um, though we couldn't get the leadership uh, that we tried to, to get, um, we had little, uh, uh, it wasn't that much of a problem to get very, very well-spoken, very um, informative uh, people that had great insight on, on Putin. So what I want to do, given that I don't want to ruin too many surprises uh, for part two, which airs Wednesday night, uh, it starts as part one did, 
sort of with these ominous back and forths between John Brennan, the then CIA director, Jay Johnson, the then Homeland Security uh, Secretary Brennan wanting to come to Johnson's office to brief him on these urgent and secret matters uh, affecting the 2016 election. But as part one of Putin's Revenge points out, the story really begins 30 years earlier with the fall of the Berlin Wall, but picks up pace considerably on New Year's Eve 1999 when Boris Yeltsin, the president of Russia that I knew best given my time at the White House under Bill Clinton, unexpectedly announces his retirement and handing over to his prime minister of only a few months, Vladimir Putin. Let's hear just a clip from Putin's revenge. Across Russia, they tuned in. I have made a decision. I've been thinking about it painfully for a long time. Today, at the last day of the departing century, I am resigning. I watched it on December uh, 31st. I remember I was crying my eyes out. He just said, forgive me for what I haven't managed to achieve. I want to ask your forgiveness, for many of our dreams have not come true. And for the things that seemed easy, but turned out to be excruciatingly difficult. Jim Gilmore, did revisiting those moments 18 years ago bring back the kind of shudders that come across in Will Lyman's narration for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating moment in history, um, how, things, how things changed. And, you know, the expectations back then about, you know, what Yeltsin was doing in Russia, the partnership that he had with Bill Clinton, the idea that, you know, he had democracy in his heart. And, um, and then this decision um, <clears throat> just shows how history turns, how history can turn on one individual's decisions. This decision to bring a former KGB guy in to run the country that Yeltsin, you know, gives the imprimatur towards, uh, it's, just, it's just a fascinating turn of events because very quickly he becomes uh, an authoritarian who comes down uh, hard on, uh, on his press and um, the oligarchs that really sort of ran things in Russia under Yeltsin and took power um, very quickly. His relations changed dramatically with the United States and that's what we go into in the first hour is, is, is a, give it, to give our audience a better understanding of that history between Vladimir Putin and uh, three administrations and how each of our administrations that came in, the, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and, and certainly the Obama administration, had these great hopes um, for the possibilities of working with, with Putin and Russia. And how each of them at the end basically had thrown the relationship into the toilet, as, 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 as was defined during the Bush years, um, because they just didn't understand who this man was. And the bottom line in the end was that Yeltsin didn't understand who this man was. And in the end, um, we have Strobe Talbot telling us how people very close to Yeltsin said that he had, in the end, as he was close to death, had understood the huge mistake he had made. Uh, by appointing Vladimir Putin to the to to the presidency, you have this amazing piece of video in which President Clinton, in the final years of his two terms in office, flies to Moscow, visits with President Putin. You have Jake Sullivan in an interview looking at some of the video that you put into the movie of Putin with his legs spread, slouching in his chair, 
not paying. I think the word that Talbot says is he's indifferent to Clinton. Then you cut to footage of Clinton visiting a more enfeebled Boris Yeltsin in his in his apartment, a huge bear hug. And you couldn't have a bigger contrast of the way American leaders and Russian leaders approached each other than that juxtaposition of the legs spread Putin in the Kremlin and Clinton visiting his elder statesman Yeltsin in his apartment. And, and I think it surprised Clinton dramatically. I mean, it, the story goes on and um, him telling Yeltsin that um, he's worried. He's worried about this guy that uh, is now president um, he, because he, and he says because he doesn't have um, you know in his heart the democracy as Yeltsin did and he sort of taps Yeltsin on his heart because I mean they had an amazing relationship uh, together and at that point the great hopes were that was that um, Russia was going to join uh, the European community the Western community of, of, of democracy and, and capitalism and and that's the direction that it that it was going until um, it quickly changed um, when when Putin came on board and the the, the other thing that the, our film uh, both films do is define how over the years um, Putin became more and more paranoid about the United States, more and more angry about what he he thought was the United States sort of pushing its hegemony over the, the entire world as NATO uh, came closer to the borders of, of Russia, as as revolutions took place in, in uh, countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. And he blamed the United States for it. And we sort of take it step-by-step through the many events that take place from uh, Iraq in 2003, which which, um, was one of the major turning points for Putin and and how he viewed his relationship with President Bush. And the Arab Spring, when the Arab Spring takes place, uh, was a major point in his feeling that the United States was controlling everything, um, and that specifically uh, Hillary Clinton uh, was in the midst of it. And and, and this paranoia paranoia grew and grew. His hatred towards leadership figures such as Hillary Clinton grew and grew. And that's sort of what our first hour really helps one understand, is how he turns, how he evolves, how we don't understand him well enough, and how it eventually does lead to major decisions that he makes, first in the Ukraine and then uh, eventually in the 2016 election, why he comes after folks that he thought were involved in trying to bring him down. You have Julia Yaffe of The Atlantic commenting in a way that I've always observed Vladimir Putin, a person who is very focused on his own image, the way he's portrayed in a tank on the Ukrainian border, in a fighter jet getting suited up for supersonic flight, but also so obsessed with footage of a person who had been his ally, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. You have Yafi saying that he watched the footage of Gaddafi being apprehended and ultimately executed over and over again. Yeah, I mean, and she wasn't the only one who told us about this, that he was fixated on that video. And it's horrible video. We have um, a lot of the video in, in the film to, to bring back the memory of what took place. He felt that we were knocking off allies of his, people that we disagreed with um, left and right. And he, he, in his mind, thought that eventually they, being us, uh, would come for him. And that motivated him 
dramatically through the years. Um, but as from the Arab Spring on, I mean, it, it just it just um, took up steam uh, dramatically. But it is he's a fascinating guy. And the other thing he has to always remember is his training was in KGB. His his uh, part of his job was to uh, suss out conspiracies that the West would bring against um, Russia, the Soviet Union, or, or originally. Um, so there's this paranoia that was built in basically into his resume. And, it, and I think the other part of it is that we never quite understood the man, and we didn't understand the moves that he was making, so that when finally he gets involved in, in trying to influence our elections, I think it was a dramatic surprise that, that we, we, we didn't understand the capabilities nor the, the goal of this guy uh, to take the steps that he, that he does. And one of the major points of Putin's revenge is under, helping us all understand that this story doesn't really begin in 1999 or even during the Bush or Obama years. It begins really in the Reagan years when a young KGB agent is dispatched to Dresden in East Germany as a counterintelligence officer and witnesses what's happening in Berlin. And I want to hear a little bit of that from the film and then talk to you about it on the other side. It was in East Germany that Putin first came face to face with the conflict between the USSR and the United States. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This protest movement may now be reaching a critical moment. You're remembered for communism's loss of influence in the world. Here the feeling is the end of the Cold War is at hand. For many people, there is a defining moment in their history when all things after that moment refer back to it in some way. From ABC, this... Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Putin saw such a moment when the Berlin Wall came down. They are here... In the thousands, they are here in the tens of thousands. Marking the waning power of the Soviet Union. You heard Susan Glasser, you heard Peter Jennings. Jim Gilmore, who pointed you to the idea that Putin's time in Dresden is really the inciting turning point for Putin's revenge? Um, Peter Baker and and, um, Susan Glasser, um, who are married and were in in Moscow together, in the very early days, they they spoke about it. Every biography that we read uh, sort of focused on it. Um, The Russian press focuses on it because Putin spoke about it quite a bit. In in a very early film about him, uh, he brings it up. So it was a, a, a very poignant moment, a very a turning point in his um, experience. It was is when he, uh, a lot of people talk about the fact that he was in Dresden. He wasn't in Russia at the time that the country made that turn uh, towards democracy. He didn't see it, really. He didn't experience it in his heart, basically. He was so, sort of still uh, trying to be the faithful KGB officer. And when he saw there's another story about the fact that when demonstrators came to the doors of KGB in Dresden, he called up, or he had someone call up Moscow to ask what what should they do, and they got no response. Moscow uh, is silent. Yeah, and and I think that um, sort of scared him, and he didn't understand, uh, you know, what was going on to the country, a country that he. You know, to this day, uh, the fact that the Soviet Union would eventually break up soon after was one of the most horrendous moments in history, uh, according to how he viewed it to, to this day. So this is integral to, the, to his makeup, to, the, his, to, to understand him. You have to understand how 
um, he saw this history that was he he was dealing with face to face while while in Germany. And he begins this long march to as the as Putin's revenge points out, make Russia great again. We go through the eight years of the Clinton years where he takes power in 1999. Clinton leaves office in 2001. There's 9-11, and suddenly there is maybe a, a new hope in Putin's eyes that you could deal with a Republican, that Republicans would be less meddlesome in the internal affairs of the Russian Republic, and a new President Putin could actually have dealings with George W. Bush. Their first meeting prophetically is in Slovenia, and Putin does a lot of preparation for that, as any counterintelligence officer would. And then there's this famous news conference at the conclusion of the summit as President Bush's aides are looking on. Question to um, President Bush. Is this a man that Americans can trust? Putin's story about his mother's cross seemed to have had its desired effect. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. And Bush gives that line, right? That I looked into his eyes and got a sense of his soul. And we go, uh-oh. And Condi does her version of not comfortable. She just reacts just for a second. I wouldn't have invited him to my So that's uh, Ron Fournier asking the question of Bush. And then you've got one of the State Department's incredible Russia, former, now former Russia experts, Dan Freed, talking about the way people like Condoleezza Rice watched Bush give that statement. Jim Gilmore, how did Yeltsin prepare for that summit? And what did the reference to Yeltsin's family mean to, uh, or to Putin's family mean to President Bush? Um, he, um, he understood that President Bush was very religious. And he had a story that he used to tell quite a bit, actually, uh, um, in, the, in the past that that he understood would would have an effect on the president, and it was a story about how uh, building that they, that he had lived in with his family at one point burned down, and he had lost a, um, a cross that his mother had given him that he kept close to him as a um, memento, and um, they found the cross after the fire, and it was was not affected. Uh, it was darkened a little bit by the flames, and that was it. And he brought that up as as a, sh- uh, a show that he was also a man of faith. And to Bush, it, it had a great effect. Again, Putin is a very smart man. He's psychologically, he understands people. Um, it's part of his training. But he's he's a liar. I mean, he's a he's a guy who the truth does not is not essential. The truth or lies is is just another tool in coming to the conclusion, to the goals that he is trying to achieve. And so, to some extent, the, I guess the, the moral of the story is, is that, um, or the conclusion that we come to is that, that Bush was somewhat manipulated here because um, Putin is a, is a master manipulator. And then, as we get into the last administration, President Obama's, there's one more chance for the United States to manipulate back or at least put the relationship with Russia on a better track, you make the point in the film that every administration comes in with high hopes of undoing the mess that their predecessors created. You have that ubiquitous footage of Marine One flying into the South Lawn, President Obama getting his first national security briefings 
on Russia. And then we've all seen the footage in the Oval Office of President Trump with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. But there was a prior meeting between uh, the Secretary of State under the Obama years, Hillary Clinton, and Lavrov. And you, in the frontline way, in Putin's revenge, linger longer on the visual bite, the sound bite, than we see on the evening news. And I want to hear it the way it comes off in the film because it does seem so awkward and clumsy from the U.S. side. Let's hear. Secretary Clinton met with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov of Russia in Geneva. And the goal of that meeting was actually to establish this thing called the reset. I wanted to uh, present you with uh, a little gift which represents what President Obama and Vice President Biden and I have been saying. And that is, we want to reset our relationship. Let's do it, let's do it together. So we will do it together. Okay? Uh, one of her staff members had the idea to actually memorialize the reset with a uh, physical handing over of a reset button. Yeah, it's this, bu- it's this plastic button. It says reset, and it was just, it was kind of a, a gag gift, but it was also symbolic of what Hillary Clinton's trying to do. We worked hard to get the right Russian word. Foreign Minister Lavrov looked at it and said, that doesn't say reset, that says overcharge. Think we got it? You get it wrong. I got it wrong. So misspelled, that might have been prophetic. My Russian's a little rusty and I, I trusted somebody else. I won't say who. It should be Perezagruska. Ah. And this says uh, Perezagruska, which means overcharge. <laughs> Jim Gilmore, uh, putting that the reset button scandal back onto film was sort of like rebuilding Dukakis in the tank. What was that process like? Um, well, it was. It did show a naivete. Um, the whole idea was just supposed to be a little bit of a, a joke, a little bit of levity. Um, but it, 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 it just it just sort of pretends, you know, not in a good direction in sort of where where we are headed next. And in fact, the, the relationship fell apart pretty quickly. And um, it was sort of at this point where um, it was very difficult to... Uh, to bring uh, Putin back into the fold because he he was so he had decided really that the United States was going in a direction that that, that he would not allow he did not want to lose any more power he was trying to make Russia great again and and he had very very different views and and that's sort of um, where we go next in, in in the films so part two of Putin's revenge airing on Wednesday night uh, begins with this computerized voice recreating an email to now Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta asking him to reset his password. And if you can, in just a few minutes, Jim, where does part two of Putin's revenge take us from that prophetic email that Podesta received? Well, it breaks apart um, uh, how uh, Putin, over time, had the direction he was going, which was leading towards the involvement in the, in the 2016 elections, and, and how he uses uh, events in Ukraine from 2014 on um, as a petri dish on, of trying to figure out a, a hybrid war, which he has developed, a uh, use of, uh, of cyber sleuthing and uh, kinetic warfare as well, as along with 
disinformation, uh, which um, they were so good at, at doing. And they used that in Ukraine. They used that in Estonia. In 2007, they attacked Estonia and closed the whole country down with a cyber attack. So he had been honing the skills of this hybrid war for many years so that it was not a huge surprise uh, when our intelligence folks finally understand what they are doing within our systems in the United States, and something that had been taking place for years, getting into the White House, getting into the Defense Department, getting into State Department, so that when we finally understand that they have also hacked into the DNC in 2015, we slowly start peeling the onion of what is taking place, and 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 from the cyber espionage to the idea that they would use that espionage and, and release it to basically weaponize uh, the tactic. Um, and then the, the, the amount of disinformation that started coming our way in social media and through uh, their, their media sources, slowly the second hour unravels what they were doing, how we learned about it, how the administration, the Bush, the Obama administration tried to deal with it, was not very effective in dealing with it, kept on going back to Putin saying, we know what you're doing, Vladimir, and Vladimir denying it, constantly denying both in Ukraine and then in what he was doing in the elections. And the some of the diplomats that we talked to sort of look you in the eye and sort of say, well, how... Do you deal with that when your opponent, who you're trying to diplomatically deal with about this event, denies it, that they're involved whatsoever? It, it was a very, very savvy sort of uh, way that, 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 that Putin went about it. And the second hour tries to unveil how he operates and how we reacted and how um, uh, candidate Trump at that point uh, reacted as well. So it's, it's a fascinating hour. Learn all this and more on the second hour of Frontline's Putin's Revenge, airing Wednesday night on PBS. Jim Gilmore is the film's producer and reporter. Jim, thanks for joining us on Trumpcast. Josh, it's been a great pleasure. And that's the show for today. Did you like it? Tweet at us, at RealTrumpCast. Let us know what you think. That's at RealTrumpCast. TrumpCast is produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening.